The Lancet Psychiatry Podcast, bringing you the latest news and views from around the world of mental health. Thanks for joining us. So in our journal's latest issue, we have an article that looks in-depth at the use of suicide risk assessment tools throughout UK mental health institutions. And one thing that was noted in the paper is that a significant number of patients who die by suicide and are in contact with health services were rated as low risk during their last meeting with a clinician. Um, This not only highlights the difficulty in predicting suicide, but it also highlights the shock that can follow for a psychiatrist who loses a patient uh, this way. On the line with us to discuss this more is Dr. Rachel Gibbons, a consultant psychiatrist and chair of the new working group on the effect of suicide and homicide on psychiatrists and patient safety group at the Royal College of Psychiatrists. Dr. Gibbons, thanks very much for joining us today. Hi. The death of a patient is something that most doctors will experience during their career, but losing a patient to suicide is unique. Given your own experience and the experience of colleagues you've helped who who have lost a patient to suicide, can you tell us what what makes losing a patient this way particularly tough for uh, for a mental health clinician? I mean, actually... uh... Patients die by suicide in all areas of medicine. I mean, in general practice, there's a lot of, um, you know, trauma for the GPs there, but also this happens in all other branches of medicine, that if people have quite serious physical issues, that can be a higher risk factor for suicide as well. But there's something specific, I think, to psychiatrists to do with our uh, relationship with suicide and the expectations upon us as professionals Uh, regarding suicide, which I think is the unique thing. I think we have a particular um, attitude. We, I I think we believe in a, in a somewhat disturbed way, actually, that our job, I think, is to predict and prevent suicide. So I think there's something in the way that we have uh, the perception of our role, which is distorted um, around this, which is part of the issue. But also, I think society also puts something on us Um, of this as well, that somehow it is our role to predict and prevent suicide. And I think in both of those aspects, there is a problem because um, the real nature of suicide isn't being thought about. I I think the the problem with suicide is it confronts us with a real struggle of living. It's a a human condition. It isn't a mental health condition. Mm. The majority of cases of death by suicide do not occur in the mental health population that are being seen uh, within the mental health services. 75% aren't and a lot of those people that die by suicide don't have any history of mental health problems at all so where does this leave us when we're thinking about suicide Um, and what we know is that suicide is is part of the human condition so it's something that is across culture uh, is across time Um, so how you know so what do we what do we think about that and I think it's very painful it puts us in touch with the struggle it's very hard to live sometimes Um, And I think when someone dies by suicide, it makes us question um, the sort of realities of our lives um, and the meaning of life. And I don't think we want to. We don't want to be put in touch with those feelings. Mm. And and you talk about this this weight that maybe psychiatrists feel regarding suicide and responsibility around it. And so previously, we spoke with a mental health advocate and, and filmmaker, Angela Samada, about bereavement by suicide. But in our discussion, it was bereavement uh, for family members who, who lose, lose a loved one. What role do psychiatrists play with bereaved families of patients they lost? So do, do psychiatrists interact with the families? And I, and, and I guess I was wondering if there's any advice you might have for a 
for psychiatrists that might find themselves in this dual position of bereaving themselves, but then also feeling this responsibility of maybe supporting a family? I mean, maybe, I think that's a very important question. Uh, It might be worth just having a, a moment to think about the nature of the effect of a death by suicide. Um, I mean, that suicide in the majority of cases comes out of the blue. People are not expecting it. Even if someone is chronically suicidal at the time they die, people aren't expecting it. Um, It can be very, very, very shocking and suddenly have have a sudden traumatic loss. The effect of that um, is to throw everybody, the clinicians working with the patient and the family into a state of extremely high distress and anxiety. And when you're in a state of high distress and anxiety, you can't think. You can't um, rationally think in any way. Um, So I think that's probably very important to think about. And I think this is where, um, you know, the very some very strong feelings can come in because it makes no sense. You're traumatized. When you're traumatized, you lose the capacity to think it's called. You lose your capacity to mentalize. And therefore, you can only think in black and white ways. You know, there's a fault, blame, guilt. Um, And this can then make the whole environment that clinicians of family are in immediately after the death a difficult one, a a very difficult one to to think about the right thing to do. Um, So there's... So I, th- I think if the people get thrown into high anxiety and in a state of high, high anxiety, I think they can behave in ways that might not be um, the most helpful. Mm-hmm. So, so I think this is a very, very important area to think about. However, psychiatrists aren't on their own with supporting bereaved families, and they might not be the best person to do it. If they're in shock um, and overwhelmed, then to rush into contact with the families who are also in shock and overwhelmed might actually make the situation worse rather than better. Mm-hmm. And I've seen this happen. I've seen psychiatrists who have repeatedly tried to phone the family when they found out um, in a sort of very intrusive way. And the family might not want contact um, afterwards. So there's something about uh, being very thoughtful about it getting help yourself before rushing into something. It's not down to you mm-hmm. as the psychiatrist alone to support a bereaved family. You know, the, the, hopefully within your trust and with your environment, there are systems and processes. You're also part of a team. Other members of the team might have had um, contact with family members. And I think as psychiatrists, we have a very overdeveloped, rather omnipotent sense of our responsibility. We, we think we can read people's minds, we think we can, we're responsible for things we can't possibly be responsible for. Mm. Um, and that then means, you know, you see people after the death saying, oh, you know, I'm somehow got to look after my team. I've got to look after the family. I've got to do everything. And, and they can't do that. They can't do that. And to run around not looking after themselves and thinking about what their needs might be. Because in quite a lot of cases, the psychiatrists themselves suffer with post-traumatic stress after a death like this. You know, they need to look after themselves and address where they are before rushing into anything else. What are some of the things that, that you find psychiatrists or what, what might a psychiatrist go through or experience after losing um, a, a patient this way? So I've been running a, a su- it's what's what I call a suicide group for consultant psychiatrists over the last 12 years, following my own experience in the first three weeks of being a consultant of, of losing two patients, of two patients dying in this way, which had a very profound effect on me. And in retrospect, I'm sure I had a post-traumatic stress disorder. So I've been running this group um, with colleagues and uh, 
the psychiatrists that have had this experience come and talk in this group. It's a confidential reflective space to have a think about what's happened. And what you'll notice is a very stereotyped response often um, following the death. And I don't think it's just psychiatrists. I think this can be uh, a response in many different, many in, in families, in different, um, different professional groups after a death by suicide. So what you initially see is immense shock. When someone is told that a patient of theirs has died, they are very, very shocked. Um, and they're not expecting it. I've never seen somebody who's been told, say, oh, yeah, immediately I was expecting that. Oh, I was, um, somehow that's not a surprise. They're very shocked, but within about 20 minutes, they start constructing a narrative because the uncertainty and shock is, is almost impossible to bear. And we're, we're narrative beasts. So we create narratives as a way of coping with uncertainty and then stick to them you know, with, a, with an almost delusional intensity. So they create a narrative within 20 minutes that they did see it or there were signs that they missed and they'll write this narrative with themselves as the protagonist. And they will uh, for very soon start to feel guilty, to blame, that it's their fault, that they've done something wrong that's led to this death, um, humiliated, um, uh, yeah, humiliated and ashamed. And they will can get very preoccupied and very stuck in this place, obsessionally, um, this sort of obsessional guilt, fear, blame, shame, um, for very long periods of time. If not, if they don't have an opportunity to address it and talk about it, I think it can stay with them in this way um, throughout their professional lives, actually. If they do have an opportunity to talk about it, then something can shift mm. and they can start working through this. Um, but in a lot of cases, and I get emails uh, almost every week from psychiatrists and other clinicians who say, actually, I left psychiatry or I left general adult psychiatry because I had a death by suicide and I haven't told anybody about it. That sort of point of acute uh, yeah. guilt, and blame and shame and anxiety can lead to uh, changing career, um, leaving psychiatry, making different choices in their professional lives. You know, so it's a very, um, and, and all these deaths are different and psychiatrists behave in very different ways. Mm -hmm. But I have seen an awful lot of um, people who've been traumatized as a result of, as a result of these deaths. So I was going to ask about when you started this working group at the Royal College. Is it difficult to get psychiatrists to come and work with the group and, and, and get help? 12 years ago, when I started working um, on suicide, it was almost impossible to get anybody to talk about it at all. Mm. But gradually, the atmosphere has changed. And now people are willing to talk about their experiences as we start to share our experiences. And psychiatrists are feeling not alone with it. They're starting to come out and say, oh, actually, you know, this is important. I want to talk about it. I want to um, contribute in some way, you know, that and starting to talk about their trauma, which might be many years in the past that they haven't had an opportunity to address. Um, so people are, yes, definitely at the moment, there is a lot of, a lot more interest um, than there was. About sort of eight years ago, I was contacting the Royal College of Psychiatrists. The reason in a way for the group is um, I was contacting the Royal College of Psychiatrists, sort of knocking on the door, all over the place saying, tell me where you're working on suicide. I want to contribute. I want to do something. And then there was a lot of confusion about actually, well, what are you talking about? We don't have anybody that's really working on suicide at that time. Not specifically. Um, there is a patient safety group there, which 
which has that as part of its role. Um, but now it's a, it's, a, it's a very different atmosphere um, and the effect of suicide and homicide, um, which is an even more painful area, I think, is starting to become a more clear uh, area to start thinking about and working on. Working so one thing that, that I, I hadn't thought about is, is the idea that you, you may have some psychiatrists who come to start getting help for something that may have happened years and years ago. So some people may be experiencing it sort of fresh and new, but some people may have gone through it quite a while ago and just never felt like they were able to, to discuss it. Do you notice any differences between those situations and working with them? Uh, a very clear difference is that women find it easier to talk about than men. Mm. Uh, that, that female psychiatrists are much more willing, I think, to come and talk in the group or come and talk about their experiences um, and be vulnerable about them, I think, than men tend to be. Although, again, this is changing as time goes on. But in the research we did with um, the Oxford Centre for Suicide Research, we found out from the research that women seem to feel themselves to be more responsible than male, female psychiatrists felt more responsible um, than male psychiatrists and were, were more troubled by that after, after a death. So that's a very obvious, um, you know, noticeable difference um, and I think the older psychiatrists got used to not talking about it mm. it's quite a cultural change to start yeah. talking about suicide and the effect that suicides had in 2008 where this happened to me it, the culture was to not talk about it you just got on with it and I think the trouble is if you just get on with it then it affects your capacity to engage in your clinical work maybe for many 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 years mm. um, and and there is a now there's a lot of thinking about post-traumatic growth and the difference between having a trauma and post-traumatic stress and you know something becoming much harder maybe leaving retiring and the alternative which is to engage with it try and process the emotions in it develop through it and contribute something as a result of it you see this very much in in the whole world of suicide prevention there's an awful lot of people that are using their trauma to fuel creative engagement in suicide prevention. And I was hoping you could tell us a little bit about the resources that are that, that you've developed at the Royal College and, and that are available and, and things that other institutions and other groups might want to emulate to, to help uh, psychiatrists who, who are dealing with losing a patient to suicide. So we did a survey um, of psychiatrists asking them their exper emotional experiences of a death, what helped them and what didn't help them. Um, and what they would like to see. And we used that survey to develop a booklet that's actually downloadable from the Royal College of Psychiatrists website now under Supporting You. Um, there's a, we've got a whole web page there on um, after, after a death by suicide is the, is the page. And you can download this um, booklet that has been developed for psychiatrists, particularly after a death. And uh, what we found is that, you know, after after you've had this sort of traumatic experience, being able to hold something, grab hold of something and read something relatively simple that says to you, look, you're not alone. These, these are what to expect from your experiences because you can feel very alone. And so there's something about saying, actually sort of reassuring saying, look, this is, yes, it's painful. This is going to be painful, but you're not alone. This is part of our job to be able to tolerate these sort of deaths in this way. 
Um, and you might find this helpful, look after yourself, you might find this helpful, talking you through it a bit, accompanying you. So we developed this, this downloadable booklet. Um, and so that's available. We've also got on the webpage webcasts of psychiatrists talking about their experiences following a death. Again, um, it allows you to feel not alone. When this happened to me, I felt very isolated and alone. Mm. Um, and it's very frightening if you feel that. Um, what we found that they were particularly wanting, and some trusts have already developed, was um, what they'd like in their in their environments is a senior clinician, a sort of suicide lead, who who they could ask for support and get sort of confidential advice and support from. So having sort of a lead on suicide within their trust, not in a sort of persecutory way, but in a um, a sort of compassionate, holistic way. Um, they would like a confidential reflective group to be able to discuss um, the effects of the suicide and try and work through that. Um, I think they would like a culture where they feel their organisation recognises the trauma um, and, and makes something easier rather than harder. Mm-hmm. Um, what we found the psychiatrist said was, they found it easier to recover. And I don't know whether recover is quite the right word, but to move forward Mm. if they were supported in the processes after the death and they weren't too persecutory, if they were reparative rather than um, attacking. So serious incident inquiry, going to the coroner's court, um, other processes, if they were supportive, if these processes weren't too difficult and uh, attacking for them, then it was very um, they, 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 they could actually be movement towards a more healthy place as a result of them. And just linking back to the question about the families, um, the coroner's court can be a, a time where there's been enough distance between the death, there's been enough time since the trauma of the death for the clinicians and family to actually get together mm. Um you know, after after the coroner's court. And there's quite a lot of reparative experiences that I've heard about in that environment. Um, so, so that's what they would like. They also wanted support for the processes, as I've said, personal debrief, debriefing, workshops and information like we're providing. So what we want to do with this working group is also try to um, develop trust guidance about what... Uh, is reasonable for them to think about putting in for uh, for their staff after this sort of death. Mm. So we, at the moment, it's a very ad hoc and different trusts behave in very different ways. Mm-hmm. Different organisations behave in very different ways. Some providing very good support and some providing very little support. Some very persecutory environments after a, a death uh, and some sort of more compassionate and reparative environments. Dr. Gibbons, thanks so much for uh, joining us today and talking about this. I know it's a topic that uh, is really important for clinicians and and one that we don't discuss very often. So I thank you very much. Can I just add one thing? Just one thing, final final, um, sort of comment is a real difficulty that psychiatrists have after a death by suicide is that they can feel they are to blame. Mm -hmm. This is just not true. You cannot be to blame for someone else's death. Um, blame is a is a is a sort of idea that comes out of a very anxious, non-mentalizing state of mind. It's a it's a two-player game. You know, it's it's only one person. It's only one one thing that can be to blame. 
Whereas a death by suicide, suicide is a very complex multifactorial event and we do not know why it's happened. That's it for this episode. From the entire editorial team at The Lancet Psychiatry, thanks for listening. Be well and stay safe.